I am going to do something that I always said I would never do. And that is a message series on marriage. Not because we don't need teaching on marriage, we do. Not that I've never taught on marriage in the context of a book study, I have. But Pastor Chris told me that if I would preach this series, Mary would give him another chance. <laughs> Just kidding. The main reason for hesitating to do a series on message is because I've always been afraid that a portion of the congregation will just tune me out for the next four weeks because they're not married. Maybe they were never married, maybe they're widowed or divorced. Uh, but I'm going to venture into this series for a number of reasons. First, if you're not married, you might be someday. Second, we all have family and friends who are married, and so there's a great benefit to us to understand God's view of marriage and what marriage is intended to be. Last but not least, uh, it, it, marriage is a wonderful thing that God designed and created in conjunction with his creation. And so we affirm its goodness and its benefit to individuals and to society at large. We are all for healthy, growing marriages within our Knollwood family. So, here we go. When we understand marriage from God's perspective, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a noble and honorable thing. Now, I happen to notice that children have a very unique take on marriage. And a number of kids have been asked questions about marriage, and here are some of their answers. To the question, how do you decide who to marry? Kristen, age 10, says no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> when asked what is the right age to be married at, Freddie, age 6, says no age is good to be married at. You've got to be a fool to get married. <laughs> Now, we'll check in with Freddie in about 16 years, see how he's doing. Um, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Jimmy, age 8, says, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. <laughs> what do you think your mom and dad have in common? Mary, age 7, says, both don't want any more kids. <laughs> Uh, how would the world be different if people didn't get married? Calvin, age 8, says there sure would be a lot of kids to explain, wouldn't there? <laughs> well, before we jump into our topic today, let me give you a roadmap of where we're going on these four weeks. Uh, message planning team, we sat down together, we planned this out, we brainstormed. What were the topics? Obviously, spending just four uh, message times is not going to adequately cover marriage, but what did we want to focus on? And we came up with four words, and that's going to guide our discussion and our thoughts in this series. Uh, the first is intimacy. The second is teamwork. The third is communication, and the fourth is conflict. It's easy to see how those last two will be applicable, whether you're married or not. We're going to look at principles of communication and how to deal with conflict you can apply anywhere. 
But I have to be honest with you that these first two messages are particularly for those who have placed their trust in Christ and who want to follow God's direction and instruction for their lives. It may not make a lot of sense if you don't know Christ, if you don't really have an interest in what he has to say about the subject. But if you're here today without a personal relationship with God, I just appeal to you to see why Christians should hold this view because it's what God has taught us in the Bible. It's based upon His design and His desire. And I appeal to you, if you are a believer in Christ, if you're married, to understand God's instructions on marriage, His perspective that we may not be swayed by cultural opinion, which is trying to have nothing to do with God's perspective on marriage. To understand God's design and desire for marriage, we've got to go back to the beginning. Uh, We've got to go back to the original intent when God created man. And that takes us to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve's creation is given in both chapters 1 and 2 of this first book of the Bible. In some respects, the accounts are the same. And yet, when you look at them, they're different. Genesis 1 gives us the sequence of the creative work of God. It reaches its apex, its crowning moment on day 6, when God creates man. Genesis 2 gives us a different perspective on the same story. Whereas Genesis 1 gives us the linear view uh, with a focus on the historical sequence, Genesis chapter 2 gives us the story view. It's about a relational sequence. uh, Man to God, man to woman, man to creation. But it's really important that we see the ideal. Listen, we live in the world of the real. We know it. Fallen people in a fallen world, we're struggling with what is reality to us. But we've really got to begin with that original intent for marriage. The old saying is certainly true, if you aim at nothing, you'll surely hit it. So we need to aim for what we see is the ideal for what God created it to be. So the focus of this series is aiming at better, not worse. Okay, You pledge something to that person that you married for better or worse, but we want to aim for what's better. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Uh, first book of the Bible, if you grab a seat back Bible in front of you there, um, it's pretty easy to find. Just go to page 2. <laughs> Genesis. And so we're going to read the story uh, in both chapters, and then we're going to just take a step back and make some observations. I'm going to start reading in chapter 1 at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, the word is Adam, it means man, and it's a generic term. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now let's move on to chapter 2. I'll start at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now we'll jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I have lots of questions like aardvark, rhinoceros, but it's there. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Several things that we can draw out, I think, of the text. First is that man is created in the image of God. All that God created, the only thing said to be in his likeness, in his image, is man. That's what sets man apart as special. We're living in a day and age where the, uh, there's a growing, prevailing philosophy that man's no different than a higher level of animal. And yet the Genesis account says no. It's a unique creation. Look at this creation again, chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is a great picture of the intersection of God's transcendence. That is, that he's above and beyond all the created order and his personalness. The image is that of an infinite, omnipotent creator of all, stooping to gather dust from the ground, to shape it in the form of a man, and then to breathe into it the breath of life so that this man that he's created becomes a living being, a living soul. Derek Kidner notes, breathe is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. So you look at this marvelous creation and we see three dimensions, if you will, three aspects of this man that's created. First, there's the body. This is what makes him world conscious through the senses, uh, sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. Adam was conscious of the world around him because of the physical senses. And then there's a soul. This is what makes Adam self-conscious. Three parts make the soul, the intellect, the ability to reason, uh, the emotion, the ability to feel, and the will, the ability to choose. And so Adam becomes a living soul. It's the soul that puts us in touch with ourselves, the world, and then ourselves. And then God does something else. He creates man with a spirit, small s, a human spirit. This is probably of greatest significance to us. 
God created man with a spiritual dimension, with the capacity to know him, to fellowship with him, to have a relationship with him. When you read the story, you're amazed because Adam was uniquely created. All the plants and the animals were created by the spoken word of God. God spoke them into existence. But in Adam's case, he's fashioned by the hands of God, and then God breathes into him the breath of life. So we understand that Adam's identity was first defined by his relationship with God. And included in this likeness is the moral power of choice. And that's why God sets before Adam and Eve the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In their creation, God bestowed on them the ability to choose whether or not they would obey their creator. One implication you can't miss as we're reading this account is that man and woman are created with a quality. Both have the stamp of God's image. Both were blessed. Both were given the responsibility to rule over the creation. They're both commissioned by God to be his agents to build civilization. Now, there is a difference in roles within that equality by virtue of the created order, and we're going to talk about that next week. But man is created in the image of God. Second is that man was created male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller writes, this means that our maleness or our femaleness is not incidental to our humanness, but constitutes its very essence. God does not make us into a generic humanity that is later differentiated. Rather, from the start, we are male or female, Every cell in our body is stamped as XX or XY. That man was created male and female is significant because it's part of telling us who we are. This maleness and femaleness means that God didn't just make people as persons who happen to have different biological plumbing so that gender doesn't matter. But God's intent was that in this creation of his Adam and Eve, they would have gender. Genesis 2 then gives us the sequence of God's creation of the male and female. And it's going to tell us something very significant about man, and that is that man was made for human relationships. Go to the text again. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See, everything up to this point has been done with this exclamation point, and it was good. Now God looks at Adam and says, this is not good. See, I, I, God creates Adam with a sense of aloneness, with a need for human relationship. Think about this. In a sense, Adam had everything that was ideal, a personal relationship with God, 
He lived in a perfect environment that God specifically made for him, a garden. And yet, in spite of all that, there is aloneness. Dr. Larry Crabb makes this point about the importance of relationships in his book, The Marriage Builder, when he writes, Why is the theme of relationships so prominent in the Word of God? Because only within the context of relationship can the deepest needs of human personality be met. The fact is, God created Adam with the need for human relationship. The question, of course, that might come up is, well, why didn't God just create Eve simultaneously? Why didn't he just do it all right away, right at once? Well, I believe it was to provoke within Adam his sense of need. To create in Adam the reality of his aloneness. And God parades all the animals before him that he should observe them and study them and then name them. But he must have noticed that there were none like him. There were none there with reason. There was none that could love. There was none that had the capacity to know or to be known. No one with the capacity to know and to love God. And Adam is now ready to receive what God has for him. Look in chapter 2, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Dr. Donald Joy tells us that the word commonly translated rib is a construction term, not an anatomic term. It refers to the vertical structure and pieces of the interior of the hull of a wooden boat, its ribs. It should be the image of, of a thoracic surgeon who cuts the, the ribs from the sternum and literally has to open it up to get into the heart of a person in open-heart surgery. So here is God going to the heart of, the, of Adam, the center of his affections and his belief, and he brings out then what he fashions into Eve. Look at the end of verse 22. And brought her to the man. God presents Eve to Adam. It's a great picture. He didn't just put Eve out in the garden somewhere hoping that someday Adam would run across her. Uh, he demonstrates that he will be the provider for Adam, that he is Adam's creator, knew and indeed created Adam with this need, and that he would be the one who would meet Adam's need so that together man and woman would be complete. God presents Eve to Adam. Look at his response in verse 23. Then the man said, This is last, is bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's been taken out of man. Whenever Pastor Chris, because I know, because I've been there, when, when he or I do wedding ceremonies, we will often read this passage and we'll talk about that when God brings Eve to Adam, his first response was, Whoa, man! And that's how she got her name. Uh, I want you to notice that Eve was made for Adam as a helper suitable to him. We're going to talk a lot about that next week, what it means, what it doesn't mean. You know, the issue of equality is at the heart of so much dissension and debate, uh, even within the church today. 
uh, certainly by those who would call themselves biblical feminists, others who struggle with this passage of Scripture. But the Bible clearly indicates equality in so many respects, so many aspects. Both the man and woman created in the image of God. Both the man and woman accountable to God. Both the man and the woman were found guilty of disobeying God's command and received the judgment of death that would come because of that. And finally, they are equally objects of God's grace. There's wonderful relationship here of the man and the woman. Created in the image of God, created male and female. Here's the follow-on. Male and female were made to be sexually complementary to each other. Certainly we can understand the physical, biological reality of this. Uh, implied in this command that the man and the woman were to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth is sexual relations. Sex was God's idea. Some people in society are really shocked that that might be the case. Um, God somehow doesn't blush about sex. He made it. He made it good. Uh, And after he created man and reflected on everything that he had created, it says that it was very good. Another thing we should note is that this complementariness is set in the context of marriage. Neither gender in itself had the completeness necessary to fulfill the responsibilities that God had given to Adam and Eve. And so we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this verse is obviously not the words of Adam. Uh, These are the words of Moses, the author of Genesis. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pens these words. And in the marriage is exhibited as the greatest and the deepest spiritual and physical unity of a man and a woman. And it held up before Israel monogamy as the form of marriage ordained by God. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. Uniting of male and female to form one. Jesus affirmed this truth in a discussion about divorce with religious leaders. Notice what he said recorded in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate it. And what we have in the Genesis statement and in Jesus' restatement of it is a model pattern that this sets for a biblical marriage. First, there's leave. There's a separating from one's identity with parents to unite with another, thereby forming a new union, a new demonstration of unity, the beginning of the process all over again. I don't know if you noticed when that verse is read, but it's interesting to me that the instruction to leave is given to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Many marriages flounder when the man refuses to leave. Mummy's boys and daddy's boys have problems if they don't differentiate and separate going into marriage, becoming a new unit. Here's the second thing, cleave. 
uh, reads hold fast in the English Standard Version. But it's the idea of gluing, of bonding together. You know, you take two elements from superglue, you bond them together. That's what's being described here. The result is one flesh. The union that bonds them as one, a bonding where sexual pleasure is enjoyed uh, and experienced with full adult responsibility for the purpose of intimacy. And God creates a responsible, commitment-based, long-life bonding to occur at this ultimate stage of intimate relationship. That's why God says sex is for marriage only. Now, there's a profound statement at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we see the nature of this relationship with these ingredients. There's physical transparency. There's emotional transparency. There's psychological transparency. In a word, intimacy. A uniting of body, soul, and spirit. When we see this in Adam and Eve, there's this tremendous freedom and security in their relationship. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing, nothing masked in relationship, communication, or intimacy. There are no walls. That there, it's completely unthreatening. Total acceptance of each other. Dr. David McKenna writes that the relational credentials we must have if we're to be effective are a sense of identity, of security, and a sense of self-worth. These three essential ingredients were all experienced in full measure in Adam's relationship with God and with Eve. Now, let me say this. For those of you that are single today, for whatever reason, never married, divorced, um, widowed, whatever it might be, God uh, has also created you with significant needs for relationship. And apart from intimacy, sexual intimacy, you must find those needs met by others or you will move gradually and continually toward isolation. You need others to help meet those needs. Every one of us longs for that sense of identity and security and self-worth that must come from human relationships. But beware of the big lie out there. There are no strings attached to sex. It's just a physical act. Sex outside of marriage doesn't hurt anybody. Besides, you're not accountable to anybody but yourself anyway for your behavior. So go ahead, and if it feels good, do it. It's so natural. But listen, I can assure you there is a price to pay when you seek to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. There are consequences of body, soul, and spirit. God sets in place these restrictions, to be honest, not as much as protections uh, as, I mean, not as much as prohibitions as protections. Because if God created life this way, then he knows how it best works. And though no more wrong or bad than any other sin, sexual sin carries so much more baggage with it. There are so many more consequences physically and emotionally and psychologically and even spiritually. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote these words to a sex-saturated culture in the city of Corinth. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And since he's writing to Christians who would understand his rationale for this, he goes on to add this, or do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is God's design. This is his desire for human sexuality. Male and female in sexual union becoming one flesh. Now, the meaning of that is not just physical. The term flesh here in the biblical text of it represents the whole. In other words, marriage is a union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. So there's a connection physically. There's a connection personally, socially, spiritually, even economically and legally. The spiritual connection is amazing. Uh, in Ephesians 5, where we'll be next week, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 and says that this is a profound mystery and it reflects the, the mystery of the union of Christ and the church. The joining together sexually of husband and wife is a picture of the church as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom. So you see the depth of the significance and the meaning of this. So let's step back. From the Genesis account, we begin to understand what God's design and intent for marriage is. First of all, marriage is between a man and a woman created with sexual complementarity. Then we see that marriage establishes a new family unit, one that now replaces as primary any other family relationship. Marriage involves a joining together in a committed, lifelong relationship. Now, unfortunately, marriage today is seen by many, even Christians, as a temporary, well, as long as it works out arrangement, as long as I get what I want, as long as I find my spouse attractive, as long as my needs are met, as long as I don't meet someone more attractive, more exciting, and you can just continue on. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, God declares to his people that he hates divorce. Should our response, if we believe the word, if we believe God, should our response be any different? Now, I know that divorce is rampant in our culture today, even within the church. It's affected many of you here today in one way or the other. But if we're to be faithful to God's word, we must mourn over those broken relationships. And we must seek to do all that we can to promote and to support faithfulness in marriage. Listen, life is not easy. Marriage isn't easy. If it's easy for you out there, folks, come talk to Pastor Chris. He'll set you straight. <laughs> um, marriage involves the creation of an exclusive one flesh union between husband and wife. And lastly, marriage by God's own declaration is good. God as creator established marriage, and he blessed marriage as a wonderful thing. Now, Genesis 2 ends with these words, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This verse is a bridge. It's a connector over into chapter 3. Because when they disobey God, they are immediately aware that things have changed. There's a spiritual nakedness as well as a physical nakedness. They run, they hide, they cover themselves in shame because they are painfully aware that everything has changed. They have changed. 
This state of separation, this exposed nakedness is a description of every human being today because of sin. We cannot go back to the days of innocence before sin arrived on planet Earth. But we can go forward to days of grace. And that's the thing. If you read on in chapter 3, God's wonderful grace of making an animal sacrifice so that he can clothe Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. He drives them from the garden lest they were to get back in and read, eat from the tree of life and live forever in a lost state. We see God's grace all over the pages as we read that account. Now, I intentionally began this series by presenting the ideal. Marriage was his idea. Uh, he's the one who instituted this relationship. And if he created us and if he established marriage, to me it makes sense that he knows best how it ought to work. Because we're fallen people living in the fallen world, you know, we most experience the real, don't we? Not the ideal. But in marriage, we pledge to that other person a commitment for better or worse. So let's aim for the better, not the worse. If you're here this morning, you're married, you're a believer in Christ, would you commit yourself to striving toward the ideal? Are you willing to invest the time and the effort and the work that's needed to seek the better and not the worse in your marriage? I have a suggestion if you're married. Sometime during this series, maybe I would recommend maybe more toward the end of it, perhaps, but have a date night. Get a babysitter if you have kids at home, but go out and talk about the things that we're exploring. Okay? And then pray for Chris and Mary, too. Just, <laughs> just, just kidding again. Uh, each week we'll talk about some resources uh, for you. Here's, here's the book I mentioned, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Great book. Um, I would recommend it to any of you. Um, a conference, uh, Family Life Ministries of Crew, uh, sponsor a Weekend to Remember conference. There'll be conferences coming up in, in March and in May of 2020 in Reston. Great to, again, if you've got kids at home, get a sitter, trade off with somebody, go spend a weekend, invest that in your marriage. You'll never regret that. If you need personal or marriage counseling related to that, I always recommend, because I know a number of the, the counselors and therapists there, uh, Cornerstone Counseling Center in Fairfax. Just Google it. Uh, you can scroll through all of the counselors and, and look at their different specialties and where they focus. Find one that you think might work for you. Set up an appointment and just go and, and see. And if, and if it's helpful, great. And if it's not, it's not. Um, but I just encourage those resources for you because, again, we really want marriages to work. And to make marriages work, you've got to work uh, at it. Um, now there's, 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 some, there's good times, there's fun, okay? But it's work as well, so I encourage you to that. Um, here, you know, we, we probably won't, we won't put this on the tape stand, we'll take this off, but just out of curiosity, how many here, if you're married, how many have been married for less than five years? Let's try that. Married less than five years. Okay, well, you do. we've got some. Okay, great. How about those of you that have been married for more than 25 years? Okay, look at that. Obviously, you've made it work, I think. Um, although uh, it might come down to, remember, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife was once asked if she'd ever thought about divorcing Billy. Her answer was divorce, no, murder, yes. So that does happen. Well, let me, let me pray, and then we're going to go to our dialogue time. God, thank you that you are a marvelous creator. 
Uh, how can we look at the intricacies of your creation, the eyeball? Uh, everything you've created is so amazing. And Lord, you created us to have relationships with others. And if married, to have a special relationship with that one that is our spouse. So would you help us through this series to sort through the chaff and sort through things that, that maybe raise our eyebrows, but would you just draw your truth out and drive it home to us? Uh, may we want the kind of marriages that you have designed for us. And uh, we, we acknowledge that we need your grace. We need your power to do that. And uh, but we thank you that you've created this thing uh, for, of marriage, relationships, and all of that. In Christ's name, amen.